0: Welcome to Hockey Press Pass, presented by Instat Hockey, the Main Street Board Game Cafe in Huntington Village, and by HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. This week, folks, go to HelloFresh.com PressPass16 and use code PRESSPASS16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. That's code PRESSPASS16. Who, who are the top 16s in Islanders history, Lou?
1: Who are the top six teams in Islanders? 16,
0: history? who wore 16. Oh. oh,
1: the top 16. Oh, okay. So the number 16, let's see. Well, I have to start with John Sim. <laughs> Patty LaFontaine, obviously, there Zygmunt you. Palfe. There Brian Mullen was a
0: favorite of mine. So we'll The answers are points. LaFontaine and Palfy.
1: but I right.
0: appreciate all the uh, other mentions. Uh,
1: Mike McEwen switched a couple of times, well, too. He went and, from 2 to
0: 16 and back to 2. And one of the all-time underrated dynasty members, if you look at what happened when they got them and all that. It's funny when you're not on all four teams, how you could be forgotten. But the angle for this show for Hockey Press Pass Uh, and it looks like it could be a a two-parter or more, is to take all the questions that you've asked over the course of the year. They were either sent in through our newsletter or sent in to me via Twitter or email, and they stockpiled. I also know Lou has some uh, from his time following the team, and we're just going to kind of let it run as an opportunity to, you know, yeah, sure, go down uh, memory lane, but also... Perhaps there'll be some good PR experiences or media experiences that inform, just like I've had guests on, and I've asked them questions. We've had over two dozen guests on, not counting Islander players, media members, and I've asked them to share their experiences. I've had this request for me to do the same, so that's what these episodes are about. So go
1: right to it, Lou. All right, so let's get into our first question. Um, We all know the... Mike Bossy line, every cup is sweet. And I'm just curious, and this is a question that is from me, which Islander team during your tenure or teams was your favorite? Because I know they all have their differences, different personalities. No team is usually ever the same year to year, whether it's by trade, free agency, or injury. But I'm just curious, which team and which season stuck out to you the most and that you look back on most fondly?
0: You know, it would... They'd probably, for the most part, jive with the fans' favorites. I would say that almost all of them were great, and the collections, the collection of players were great. Um, I will say, because I want to do both sides of this, the 1999-2000 season was a particular... In 2000-2001, I always have to go through the years, right? The comeback year was 01-02. Um, those final years before we're not being the last year before Charles Wong and Sanjay Kumar and in the first year with Charles taking uh, charge uh, those were difficult times and then my last season the second season Ted Nolan's team um, was challenging too. All that said challenging within the context of this is fun. To answer your question of course 92-93 and of course one 02. and yeah, of course, you know, I skipped Of course, it's going to the winning counts, but I've been with teams where they've won or had some success, but it's the collection of the individuals. So, 92 93, a particularly nostalgic time for me. I got engaged in 1992. We set the date for May 1, 1993. No, I did not see a long playoff run coming. And if anybody <laughs> out there did, God bless you. And I, I'm happy for it. And I have no, obviously have no regrets, of course, at my wedding ceremony in West Virginia. And then two weeks later at the George Washington in George Washington Manor in Port Washington. It's all my relatives wanted to talk about where the Islanders game the night before. But <laughs> Ray Ferraro... You mentioned Brian Mullen for the year, right? Claude Loisel, the kid line. I mean, I can name all 20 players. Uh, yeah, Tom Kervers, uh, may he rest in peace. Just an incredible collection. Darius and Vladimir. Glenn Healy and Dole. Mark Fitzpatrick, who's a good friend. Um, you know, it just, if you look at that team, so many of them went on to work in hockey. Either as broadcasters, yeah. or as front office people, Carver's front office, Ray, Travis Green becoming a head coach and will be again, um, and I, Tommy Fitzgerald is the general manager of the New Jersey Devils. Believe it or not, and flatley awesome. and
1: Loiselle were both uh, flatley no, and Loiselle very, were
0: both in the NHL offices too. Yeah, right? yeah they uh, with the well? alumni association, or in in case yeah. in some cases in the NHL office. So, and there is kind of a reason for that. So. You know, those guys kinda came together by crazy accidents, right? Like, you know, Pierre Terjan trade and we, you know, we've talked about that and the Brent Sutter trade mm-hmm. going the other way. And and eventually it all came together and boy were they a lot of fun. I get it that they had a great four to six week run, beating Washington in, in Pittsburgh, but that entire year was fun, and also with Al Arbor as coach, and then there's nothing quite like, and I've been asked by another network to possibly put something together with this team, just as like a little one-off, and the 0102 team, they'll be the, I've talked to them in the last couple weeks, Adrian Coyne, Steve Webb, Mark Parrish, they'll be the first one to say, look, we wind up, we didn't win anything, okay, but we are proud, because there is, the hardest thing to do in sports, The New York Jets are experiencing it now. Plenty of NHL teams are experiencing it now, is to be bad for a long time and then make that jump to playoff team, to make that jump to 10, 15 games over, 500 in the NHL or more. It is very, you you make trades, you sign guys, you think, oh, well, we have to be better now. No, it doesn't always work that way. So for that group to kind of come together with a major upgrade in talent and with a good head coach in Peter Lavillette, That was very memorable, too, because it was also nice to see players like Kenny Johnson, who had been through that, get to the other side and have their moment in the playoffs and have that game clincher. I remember the news day back page, Kenny up against the glass to give us the three that bleed at the time. I remember, of course, we sweated it out to the last second in the clinching game. Uh, But those were all memorable because they were great people to be around. Great with the media, which is what I need. Uh, to make my job easier and really good hockey players
1: i know god you know you start talking about these things and the nostalgia just starts pouring into Mm -hmm. my brain and now there's so many other questions that i want to ask and follow-up questions but we'll save that maybe for another uh, islander spotlight or nostalgia episode where we just focus on the 92 93 team Mm -hmm. because there's so many fun stories and fun memories for me because that was when i really got back into hockey it wasn't because the islanders were all of a sudden good but it was, oh, I didn't have cable growing up. I had to watch games when I went to visit my family members mm-hmm. out on Long Island. So I was listening to games on WPAT in Patterson, New Jersey, on a little transistor radio, listening to Barry Landers and Bobby Nystrom, and then sometimes Wayne Merrick filling in on the, you know, the analyst duties. And, you know, that's how I got back into it. And then I'll never forget I was a freshman in high school and we started playing street hockey with friends. Or I started playing street hockey with friends, and then I really got into it again because I was just, you know, I Islander fan since birth, but it just really got it going. And then to beat the Capitals and the Penguins and to come so close to getting to the finals. I mean, it was just absolutely insane. But the one game that always jumps out at me is a game in Pittsburgh when Danny Lorenz had to play goal and he beat the Penguins and stopped their like unbeaten streak or something. And it he I think Healy was hurt and Fitzpatrick was hurt. And Danny comes in, and they they threw like forty some odd shots on him, and I think he won three to two, or two to one, or something like that. But let's get on to the next question. So. You've been in the PR game for a while with the Islanders, obviously, although the, the wrinkle that you shared uh one of the last podcasts was that you were with the Flyers at one point. I would never knew that about you. I never knew that you were an intern 86, with 86-87, Stanley Cup, game yeah. seven. Yeah.
0: Gretzky takes over in yeah. the third round, but beat the Islanders and Rangers and in, in the first two rounds in Montreal in the third round. Rangers first and Islanders coming off the Easter Epic. An incredible experience for me that paved the way for opportunity ahead at the Islanders.
1: And it's funny because Zach Hill is one of the greatest guys. So when Kevin yeah. Kerr's mentioned him the other day too, I was like, oh, I love Zach. He's the best. But so names are going to be withheld. We won't say who this involved, but I just wanted to know what is the strangest phone call you've gotten in the middle of the night regarding a
0: player, coach, or front office member? Um. Well, I mean, in the ones of like, I can't name names, We, you know, there, there's always going to, every team's going to have this or... Somebody, I don't think they check her few too regularly these days. I don't think they did back then, but you're bound to have somebody out late and, and maybe getting in a little trouble or scene and that needs to be handled. but overall we didn't you know that that wasn't too bad. The, the call that wound up being like the most fun. it wasn't in the middle of the night. I really didn't get many of those. Um, but it was like 6:30 in the morning, I want to say, which for me is early. Is uh, was uh, in the going back to the 01 season when we played Toronto in the playoffs. The Islanders go to Toronto and drop the first two series, was already very, very physical. And Mike Milbury, we were supposed to uh, be off on Sunday, not even have a practice, really mostly to rest. Um, and Mike called me and said, uh, I had, I had every bit of plans to just stay at home with my family. I just had one young son at the time, actually the twins were born too, they were babies. And Mike called me and said, I need you to come in today, buddy. And I was like, okay, sure. Um, Might have to arrange for some sitters or something like that, but uh, is there a particular reason? And he said, "Um, I need you to try to make sure you round up as many of the writers and people as possible. Um, I'm gonna have a video session. And it's really fans from back then, though, and who followed it especially closely and Body and Han, I'm pretty sure, wrote about it in their book, Peter Body and Alan Han. Mike showed videotape back then of a whole bunch of hits and uncalled for penalties, most famously the Brian McCabe can opener. Uh, a stick move that he would use to slow down guys or to bring them down. Brian at this time is now on Toronto, of course. And the media loved it. It's the kind of juice you want in a series. We knew that Mike would get fined. I think the league moved pretty swiftly, Uh, certainly the day after they sent out the press release. They probably decided about an hour after Mike was done but that was for all, you know, I get all the other stuff on Mike, the negative stuff, and, and, and it's, we've, we've talked about that plenty. But, you know, that was at a time when Milbury was at his best because you want that fire. You're down two zip in this series, and you want to get the refs. This doesn't work as much now. I think it did more then uh, to think about a little bit harder before they call the, uh, before they blow the whistle. He did not get personal about the officials. He made a point of not doing that. But he did show those calls. The series returned home, and we started to get the calls. Did we get the calls the rest of the series? No. Did we get the calls in Toronto? No. But right. it had an impact. So if he was fined, let's say, $50,000 at the time, it was worth every penny. And it also added juice to the series. So getting that call on a day where you don't think you're going to come in, although you're happy to, it's the playoffs, it's what you're there for, uh, That was a, it turned out to be a fun call to get. Uh, last, on a personal note, and maybe I wrote about this a long time ago, but I wound up bringing my son Aiden with me, who would have been three years old at the time. And uh, I sat him up and held him on like a uh, one of the stationary bicycles when Mike did his thing. And <laughs> Mike was cursing up the storm, and everybody just kept on looking at Aiden, and you know, he didn't know what was going on. And uh, <laughs> it, it's that that is my. That is my memory of of that morning at the Nassau Coliseum is is Aiden and everybody looking at him and me saying "Ah, he's probably heard worse at home and all that stuff. So good times. All righty, let's get to our next
1: submission. We got this one from Twitter. So um, as an Islander fan, growing up and going through the dark years, we all heard a lot of stories about certain free agents that would be targeted by the New York Islanders when a certain Texas businessman uh, was taking over the team. So the names Jeremy Roenick and Sergei Fedorov come to mind. How real were those stories? Were both of those players actually thinking of coming to the island? I can't imagine Fedorov leaving Detroit to come to Long Island.
0: Yeah, I can't speak for them. What I, what I do know is in the case of Roenick, it's an easy answer in that Mike met with him that summer within the parameters of free agency, not tampering or anything like that. Uh, Mike and Jr., who who got even closer over the years together at NBC, um, established a rapport that summer. And that was something the Islanders wanted to do as far as how seriously Jeremy Roenick thought about it. um, I don't know. You you could add to that because I I believe there is a relationship there on (laughs) on Federoff. On Sergey Fedorov, I had heard that what was really cool was uh, we did a show earlier this season, the Islanders 4-check edition, and I had on Eric show, And I asked him, and this came up with another player too from that era, about what he remembered about Spano. And you know, we have the famous stories about a party at the Garden City Hotel that Spano held, but also Spano hosted the entire team in Dallas. I wasn't on that trip. My colleague did that trip. And their reaction, and Casper saying that you know somebody saying the house wasn't as Spano's house in Texas wasn't as impressive as Casper's in <laughs> wherever he lived, Comac or something like that. And we we're like, yeah, well, that's a little weird, really. Like you would think, um, but so I asked show and he he didn't. He wasn't at the Garden City Hotel bash, which was another nutty one because John never showed up at his own party that he threw. Spano, another another thing that made us wonder, right? But um, Ficho said that at this thing at his house in Texas, Spano was openly talking about how he's going to turn things around and, and a centerpiece of that guy, let me tell you, is we're going to be getting Sergey Fedorov. And, uh. like, I remember hearing about that at the time, but I never heard somebody say it so concretely. And to hear Fish and the other guys talk about it from that party and to remember it 25 years later... It was pretty astounding. So do you have any insight into JR and and the Islanders you could share before we hit Uh, the next one?
1: In our friendship, it's only come up one time because that's the only time it needed to come up. I asked him if it was true, and he said, yeah, I had discussions with them. So essentially confirming what you said. He didn't go into details on money and term and length and all that, but he said, yeah, I was— a free agent. He goes. I wanted to make as much money as I possibly could. I thought the Islanders would have been a challenge, you know, that I could help with. And so he's he he opened up about it and said, "Yeah, I was having conversations with them." And then he ended up going elsewhere. I believe he ended up in Phoenix, which, which was great for him because he loves to play golf.
0: Yeah, oh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, but it showed that he welcomed taking on uh, challenges, right? Because Phoenix sure. will always have challenges, even in the seasons where they've been better.
1: All right. Well, this submission actually ties in perfectly because you brought up Mr. Spano, if we're allowed to even call him that respectfully. But um, we know the stories that came out of uh, Kevin Connolly's 30 for 30 Big Shot. And I just want you to give us your personal reaction, or at least the questioner wants you to give, because I'm interested in this as well. Did you smell a rat early on? And were your hands tied due to the fact that like this could be your future boss and the team desperately needs an owner with you know, big pockets, which we thought all of us thought he had with the save us Spano Chan against, I think the game was against it might've been against the Dallas stars or something like that. But I just, God, I remember the Coliseum that night. Oh my God. It just, you go from one whirlwind to another whirlwind and it's just absolutely
0: crazy. The, I told the story early on in hockey press pass about the first time. The short version is John Spano went to get his own autographs of John Van Biesbrook of the Florida Panthers after our 25th anniversary game. And there's a longer version to that and I get into why that's shocking and why I offered to have like our intern staff do that, that that's not something an owner needs to do and that opened the door to he doesn't seem very ownerly. He doesn't seem very rich. We've just won this game and all the legends are walking around and he's standing there with Tupac. So that's the short version of that story. But it was a a moment where myself and a close colleague looked at each other and said, okay, this is, there, there are bigger things like checks not clearing and deposits not being made that Connolly captured so incredibly in that horror movie slash documentary, a horror movie, a horror movie for me. Um, the stuff that stands out, you know, is incredible. It shows the worship of fans, and I get it. I'm a fan too. But the idea that to this day somebody'll still say he might have been the best owner we had before LeDecky and and Malkin, and and I want to say, <laughs> but he didn't have any money. You know, like me and you could have done that, and so could any fan. Like you know, he pulled off a magnificent con. He got away with it. He didn't almost get away with it. He got away with it. He got to pretend to be the owner. Mm-hmm. He made decisions. He had people move. People lost jobs. Not Me, uh, thankfully, but people were uh, moved around. And the thing that always the thing that worked for John, and I believe I led with this in a piece I wrote a long, long time ago. But when we think of con men, let's use that general term. I've been I've, the Sting is one of my favorite movies. Right with Robert Redford and Paul Newman. And you think, or you think, if I show my musical side, the music, man, when you think of these people who are con men in the movies and plays or in history, they tend to be these really charismatic figures, these loud, Mm. boisterous figures, handsome, beautiful people, right? Like, they tend to have this thing, we look at all the things that are going on now, there's a lot of documentary these days about Uber and and about uh, work and all this stuff, you could see how there was some attraction, or how they could get their stuff done. But with John, as you might know, I think you know, he was the complete opposite of that. He looked at his shoes. He mumbled worse than I do at times on this show. He, <laughs> he, he didn't look you in the eye. like he, he didn't have any presence whatsoever behind the mic. We went to Giulio Cesare once in Call Place, beautiful Italian restaurant, great Italian restaurant, for a meal. And it was this one time that he said, Chris, my colleague, I want to sit down with the writers. It was like the only time he kind of came out of his shell, but it was so obviously rehearsed. He was just awkward as fuck. Like, there's no other way else to describe it. But because he was, Lou, that's what worked for him. Because what happened was, I'd go in to get a coffee in the kitchen. kitchen we got in the Coliseum. And he'd come walking in. And I'm, all right, so now I'm 30 now. So I can't say I'm that young. At the time, I was 30, I should say. And it's only natural. The new owner comes in. I was the same way with Charles. I was the same way with everybody. It's different with an owner, even though maybe it should, right? But it is. I've
1: I've I've heard stories about, from my friend friend's days working for the Devils, that Lou Lamarillo, as respected as he is, when Dr. McMullen was in the building and he owned the team,
0: Lou was on his toes. Yeah, it's different. Because, you know, it's just different. You're yeah. right. So, so uh, like, John would come in. I, I do remember, like, one of the first times it just always stuck with me. And he'd be like, how's it going, Chris? <laughs> and I'd be like, oh, okay, John, or Mr. Spano, or I don't know what I called him back then, probably Mr. Spano. And, uh, you know, I'm... I'm trying to, and then he would just be like, all right, see you later, you know? And I, and then I'd walk away, and the rest of the day, I'd be like, oh, my God, did I say something wrong? Is he mad? I better get my right. resume out. <laughs> and, oh, <laughs> by the way, you know, he had that effect on people way higher than me in directory. He made the little thing, and that's, that's fair. But, you know, keep in mind, people signed off on those uh the the gas for the charter aircraft the gas for the charter aircraft and period loans uh expenses at the garden city hotel like you know there's my little world of it but then there's people older more educated slicker uh, more experienced than me who are also signing off because He's the boss. That's all, all we know. Until the NHL tells us otherwise, and we certainly didn't see that coming for a while. Who did? Um, that's all we know. So it really – it was an episode that was painful for a lot of people, especially the fans because of that savior sure. and broken heart. But also mm-hmm. it revealed all of us, and I'm, me as much as anyone. I'm not trying to act like I'm better than anyone else, and that he he pulled it – he pulled the wool over all of our eyes And we became different people because of this guy who had no personality. And by the way, the no personality, no charm, that wasn't an act like that. (laughs) You see it in the Connolly thing, which I appreciate. It wasn't like he invented that character to do this. This is how John is. It certainly is how he was. On that note, let's go to a quick ad read because even John knows you got to make money, right? And we are very, very appreciative of HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Go to HelloFresh.com slash PressPass16 and use code PRESSPASS16 for up to 16 free meals and three free guests. With HelloFresh, you get farm fresh pre-portioned ingredients and seasoned re- recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable... That's why. It's America's number one meal kit. My family and I, we've done the Fit and Wholesome Meals, six recipes a week to choose from, including low-calorie and carb-conscious options. This way I can go off the wagon for the for the other days that we don't do HelloFresh. <laughs> They've been fantastic, and they have saved us a lot of time. I know we love it. Cuts back on time spent in the kitchen with meals ready in around 30 minutes or less. Yeah, there were some that like 10, 15-minute stops, and it's 72% cheaper than a restaurant meal of the same quality. So please go to HelloFresh.com slash PressPass16 and use code PRESSPASS16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. Palafontein, Ziggy, palfi PressPass16, HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. All right. We want to get back into the questions? Yeah, let's do it, Lou. Thank you.
1: Yeah. So this one comes from Twitter. This is from at Isles 1972. It says, Chris, media question for you. What was the story of Chris King getting hired? Um, And then he goes on to say, typical analyst, hockey player or background. Even rarer for an analyst to become a play-by-play guy, Chris is great, just curious about the story. I think he might be getting Chris King confused with K-R-I-S, King, the it, it's, it's possible. You can yeah. read that. Because I know our Kinger never played yeah. in NHL. And
0: uh, it, it's possible he just actually just means Chris King in general, like, did he play? The story right. of Chris with a C, spelled like my name, King, is a, is a wonderful one. He could tell you a lot more, I'm sure, and maybe someday he'll write his autobiography or he'll write a book or do something, uh, just talking about his experience. What I love about Chris King and the story of his career is when you're talking about a, a professional sports team, you need your best players, and that's all that matters. There's culture and character and all that, but you need your best players, in the case of Chris King, he rose through the ranks appropriately, fairly, and deservedly through hard work, being an Islander and a Long Islander, being a class guy, and continually working at his craft. From what I recall, he got his start as like over at an WLIR doing like updates and pre-games. And then we had an opening in the color commentator chair, the analyst chair, and me and others. He was kind of next in line. And he was, he, when I say he was there, I don't mean that in a negative term. I mean, he was there willing. And, and we knew that if he got this position, he would run with it. And he did. And then he did the games with uh, many announcers, but including Jim Cerny. Then when there was an opening in the play-by-play position, Steve Mears got the play-by-play job. And um, I was part of that process too, very much so, so much so that I met with all the announcers who came in. And I believe, well, actually I know, Chris King wanted that position, and I feel badly about that. Uh, Mears uh, was highly recommended by a lot of people, had good tapes, was kind of a what I saw as a pure play-by-play guy. He had my recommendation, so did other people, and he got it. And him and Kinger, Mears and Kinger, had a great run as play-by-play and color commentator. I'm then gone, and Mears gets a job in Pittsburgh, which is his hometown, and his team, and we knew that would happen. And I'm so glad that Chris King got the slide over and to be the play-by-play announcer. So, no, he did not play at a high, high level. He did this through tenacity, like anybody, some breaks too, but he did. it didn't come easily to him. I'm here to tell you I was one of the people who passed him over as a play-by-play guy for Steve Mears. He stuck with it, um, and he just persevered, and when the uh, next opportunity came, he got it, So, like, when I was in the car on Sunday and I was listening to the, yeah, the third period of the Tampa Bay game didn't go well for the Islanders. But, you know, just hearing him coming out of breaks, his passion, making the effort to add sound, quotes from the players, pre-recorded, his framing of the game. uh, But then most of all, like, this is utter love that he has for the team. I am, um, I'm okay with the Mears decision, And I'm just overjoyed that Kinger is now in that seat and has been for a long time and has had the opportunity to call big playoff games, to close out the Coliseum, to open up UBS Arena. So uh, that's a good man. And, uh, you know, good people finish first to be if I want to be really, really corny. But that is a that is the very definition of that. All
1: right. This next question, we got this email submission, and it's something that you and I have spoken about, I believe, off camera and off mic. We had a conversation on the phone about this, but someone wants you to take them through the Tommy Soderstrom missing chest protector story. Coming off a 37-save shutout win over the Rangers, his chest chest protector goes missing, and many conspiracy theorist Isles fans thought Don Maloney had something to do with it. Their next game was against the Whalers. Tommy gives up two goals on four shots in the first, gets pulled. The Islanders end up losing 5-1. to one. Friend of the podcast, Jamie Noodles-McLennan, was his replacement and gave up three goals on
0: 24 shots. What do you remember about this? I remember lots of it well, uh, painfully and comedically, <laughs> and so much so this is maybe the only question you'll ask that um, – you gave me a heads up on because I didn't want to be like, whoa, I don't remember, you know, that thing. So I <laughs> so I checked in with a couple of colleagues who were around who were on that trip, including me, and I was there in Hartford. So everything that the reader says is true, except for the crazy bleeping conspiracy theory about Don Maloney, who's the general manager of the team. I mean, <laughs> I see that to this day. If you have any Ranger blood, and granted, Don Maloney has a lot of Ranger blood. I get that, right? He was a fixture. He was on that team a long time. Tremendous guy as well. Um, just, I mean, you got to be kidding me. Why, well, I mean, So so I almost don't even want to dignify <laughs> that. So let's throw that away because it gets in the way of a just a crazy story. So that is true. So, I get to Hartford, the day of that game, and I see Tommy, who's um, not the biggest guy, right? And he's just in the middle of the locker room hallway, and trainers and equipment guys, and and I think Noodles came by too, McLennan, and they're all like making an effort to rig this thing on him, you know, a chest protector. And I'm like, what is going on? And so in the garden... When he had that great game, um, soon after that there was a day between the two games. I'm almost certain it's okay. Did, Correct. Okay, can you confirm yeah, that? It was now? the 23rd and the 25th of March, I believe. Thank you, because I, you know, I, I believe it wasn't back to back. And um, the chest protector it was stolen. Like it didn't go missing. It was stolen. Who stole it? We do not know. It's but, that
1: played it against sports in uh,
0: Carl Place. Yeah, very. <laughs> it might still be there. And <laughs> It wasn't, I don't think they realized it until the next day. But how we got to, and I know, you know, yes, this might just fit in perfectly to the narrative of the crazy islanders of the mid 90s and things going wrong. It's probably not the first time something like this happened. I will say, just from my outsider's eyes as a non hockey player, I found it absurd. Like, I remember sitting there and going, maybe we should just start McLennan, right? Like, I don't have a vote in this, but I'm just saying right. to myself and, and probably my PR colleague, like, if we're going to this effort where we don't have a chess picture, I why we still didn't on on that day, which I think was a Saturday, um, that that's for other people to determine. And I get it that Tommy was so unbelievable in the garden the night before that of course you want to play him the next game. But he has this... New chest protector that doesn't seem to be fitting right. There's something wrong with him. He's so, yeah, you talk to any goalie, right? They, the the equipment is everything, right? I don't know anything about this, right? of habit. Yeah. And now we're putting this guy in and I, I'd have to see the goals if any of them were bad, But he played, and did you say it in the thing, something like two goals on four shots? Yeah, two goals on four shots. He he was pulled at the
1: four-minute, 59-second mark of the first period.
0: And the other, the final thing that I'll add to the mystery or the looniness of the whole thing is that, and things are buttoned down now more for security reasons, and I'm sure in in the Lou era, but (laughs) as one of my colleagues texted me earlier today, they said, you know, when we won that Ranger game or when we did win those Ranger games in the garden, it seemed like half of Long Island was in the locker room because there were so many like guests, not family, but friends of friends and agents. And and, and it was just a little bit of a wild, wild west between the media and then all these guests who are coming in to celebrate this one regular season win. I'm not saying we're popping right. champagne in there. But it was just a different time. So when you when you allow all these people, right? You think about uh, who was the guy? It was Tom Brady's jersey who was stolen, right? And they had the camera of the guy yeah. and it was the whole thing. So yeah. when, so. And by the way, how much is a love you, Tommy Soderstrom? By the way, a great card card man, uh, card player. Um, oh yeah. If yeah, oh yeah. Um, yeah I'd look it up. I think he might have even like gone pro, uh, or at some point went went pro. <laughs> incredible guy in in terms of personality, uniqueness, all that stuff. Charm. Um, If you're going to just have a whole bunch of people in the room that you can't account for, the staff, the trainers, even the media who you've gotten to know and they have that press pass. All right, granted, this would be some visiting media. Stuff like that is bound to happen. Why there was value, you know, the the Maloney theory the only the only part that has some credibility not as it relates to Don Maloney is that if there was somebody in that room and they wanted Tommy Soderstrom to fail and they wanted to, if they wanted to cool off Tommy Soderstrom after looking like the the best goalie in the history of the NHL on this one particular night in the Garden what would you do to hurt him to throw him off his game you take his chest protector and somebody did yeah. And we went to that game in Hartford, and and he started, but Noodles finished. <laughs> Amazing. Oh God, it, it it makes you laugh. You know, it's funny because
1: this next question uh, is one of mine, and uh, it's funny because you know sometimes you have to laugh, and it's the only thing you could do to keep you from crying. Mm-hmm. So this ties in perfectly. So Chris, during the dark years, did you ever go home and just weep? <laughs> like I'm not trying to be funny. No, no. But I know I. I know how I felt as a fan after some of those games, and there were plenty of moments where, like, the light at the end of the tunnel was just, you know, nowhere to be found.
0: I remember this isn't going to be probably what you expect, and you uh, you could zero in on the uh, the years because you're good that way, because I could give you a general idea of when they were. But I do actually remember two times where I wouldn't say I cried, but I was. Angry, like I was in the car. In one case, I'm in the car. In one case, I'm at the bar across the street. So let me give you the two, and they all come back to, "Are we ever going to be good again?" That's like the best way I could define it. Yep. But but in that one question case, was asked a lot during those yeah. years too. And and in one case, it's like it's legitimately uh, lunacy on my part. The the one the first time that I remember being sad was. After 92, 93, 93, 94, Rangers, whatever. So the Panthers uh, joined the league. And they got Roger Nielsen. And they have Beezer and Fitzpatrick in goal. And then they have, right, this, you know, to use a, Colin Campbell thing, interchangeable flock of forwards, which he said about New Jersey. But they had all these like gritty guys, right? Huff, and Scroodlin, and Keane, and on and on. Fitzgerald, Lindsay. Tommy, Fitzgerald, of course. Lindsay. And on paper, you're just like, well, hey, you'd love to have three of them. (laughs) You -hmm. wouldn't necessarily want ten of them as your 12 forwards. But we played them in an afternoon game and I do the media guides here, and I don't even know if it's important to look at, but it's their first season. And we now know, like, I'm thinking we're not going to be good, right? 92, 93 is going to be as good as it gets for a while. But even so, when you're playing this new team, and they have two guys on that team, Fitzgerald and Fitzpatrick, who are friends and playing an important role for, for, for the team, and they are already better than you, Right, they, yeah. they. I remember sitting at the expansion draft. The Panthers and the uh, Ducks drafted, and I remember thinking Bobby Clark kept on kind of getting like they would go back and forth, and I was like, oh, Clarky did better for the Panthers. What's up with these duck picks? Whatever. Like it seemed a little obvious in terms of NHLers, uh, ready NHLers, but it was darn depressing. I couldn't tell you what their records were, what we were, but I remember driving home to Rockville Center, a uh, first house back then. Didn't have kids yet. And I remember being downright bummed. And this is, like, really sad of me, but I do think, like, part of it was that Fitzy and Fitzy were on this team mm. <laughs> that was put together seemingly, like, with paper clips and tape, and and they are they're unquestionably better than the Islanders are. And I remember yeah. being bummed about that. And then the other one, and this is really ridiculous, but whatever... The first year of the New York Dragons Arena Football League team were. We should try to look that up. Um, if you could try to look that up while I do. So I don't know why, but it, I, I, my guess is it was before 0102 I don't know. I, I, I look it up. No, you know what? It is probably actually after the 0102 run. But you know, we're not. We hadn't won a playoff series now since nineteen ninety three. And here so they became the on November 1st, 2000. It was
1: announced that the Iowa Barnstormers had relocated to New York as the Dragons. There you go.
0: So Charles Wong bought an arena league team and uh, informed us all that we now all work for two teams. And that kind of sucks, right? Like, um, I don't know what to tell you. Like, you're already working a lot, you're already not seeing your family a lot. My usual thing, I say it about the media, we're not coal mining here. This is all in perspective, okay? But now we're working for a second team, however much smaller they are. But how sad is this of me? I'm thinking we're we're kind of like the big market team in this arena football league and that we're probably going to be better, right? We have Aaron Garcia who's come over from the Barnstormers after... Kurt Warner, Mike Karachi I think was a wide receiver. Oh yeah, we had a bunch of Kevin Swain and John Gregory, <laughs> who discovered Kurt Warner. If you saw that American something movie that came out about uh, Kurt's mm-hmm. great story being a grocer, he was over. But this is really sad. The first game they play, I'm, I'm just like, well, maybe we'll, we're going to have a winner with this team because you just want to be around some winning. Sure. And we got our ass kicked. We, got, we yeah. just got smoked. I have no idea. It's yeah. the first home game at the Coliseum. And I remember going across the street, take the staff out, because we're working hard, working two teams now, and being just – I was like, oh, man, now we got two teams <laughs> that aren't good. And I'm embarrassed to say that because that's not the job. Uh, I've Nobody's uh, shouted that louder than I am. We have a job to do as PR people. But you do want to be around some winners – and I just remember thinking like, boy, I've really sunk low here that I'm bummed that we lost this debut arena football league game because it looks like a sign to me that now we have two teams that just aren't gonna be good. So those were the two times that yeah. all these years later, I remember being bummed.
1: Yeah, it's got a, it's definitely has to be a gut punch because I know, you know, as a member of the fan base, there were just times where you would leave the arena And you would just be like, it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. And, you know, the fishermen, the fishermen sweaters that we talked about and, you know, just some of the bargain basement players that they've had great guys and they gave it their all, but you know, it was just some dark times. I was,
0: I was never sad after elimination in the playoffs, because I think that might, some people might think that would be the easiest answer. I never was sad about that because I felt like I never had any right to, because when we lost to Tampa to Tortorella's eventual Stanley Cup champions in game five in Tampa, I'm in the room and I see the hurt. I remember guys, you know, kicking over stuff and and, and being really upset and in pain mm-hmm. and, and all that. And like, I, that's just, I got, I got nothing to do with any of that. That's their right. pain. So I never, like, I kind of had a job to do. And then also you know, for the couple of guys maybe that I was the, – the relationship transcended work where we were friends. Um, you know, comfort, talk, beer by the time we got home, that kind of thing. Um, but that those weren't the moments where I'd be sad or losing game seven in Toronto and like that. You asked the question and those were the two times. It was more like are we ever going to get out of that hole? And that actually adds right. up, right, in mid-90s yeah. and then uh, early 2000 before we got better. It's It's funny
1: that you say that, though, because a friend of mine is actually was one of the or not was the he was the PR director for the New York Yankees in their heyday in the 70s and 80s. And, you know, I jokingly said, I go, how come I go every time I see you when we're out at a function, I go, you never wear any of your championship rings. He goes, because I wasn't a member of the team. He goes, I worked for the organization, but that's the honor the players get. He goes, I have them and I look at them and I appreciate them. He goes, but you don't see me wearing them like I like I think I'm a player. You know, when I go to functions, I go, if, if it's a special occasion where like the entire 1977 mm-hmm. Yankees or whichever, you know, he goes, maybe I'll wear it. He goes, but that's their honor. He goes, I'm just lucky that I got one as a gift. He goes, I didn't contribute any hits or runs, home runs, strikeouts, what have you. Yeah. And, I, and I never looked at it that way because I'm thinking if I, that was always my goal growing up. I wanted to work for a team mm-hmm. like a friend of mine that I used to work with in radio. We used to drive the, you know, the van around and hand out T-shirts and bumper stickers. And one day. He says he's leaving. He has a job at, with the New Jersey Devils and I was more than happy for him. But then after he wins 3 cups and he has 3 rings, mm-hmm. I'm going, "Come on, really? Yeah. That's all I ever wanted was just one. That's all I ever wanted was one." But I and I wouldn't flaunt it and wear it around like, "Look at me." Look at that. Because there are people that do that and it's like, "Okay, settle down. You didn't do anything to to help." Yeah. But you know, that's something I I always wanted to do. All right, so you have I think we have time for one more question. Mm-hmm. So from your own personal history, and this is an email submission we got, from your own personal history, what is the loudest you ever heard Nassau Coliseum? Bates penalty shot, 92-93 playoff run. Give us an example of the loudest you've ever heard it.
0: You know, I'm going to say, and again, uh, for the folks who don't know, my time there is very, very late 1987 to the end of the... 2007 2008 season, right? So I wasn't there for the end of the Coliseum run as a fan. I was, but um, I will say the Bates penalty shot. But here's um, here's the surprise to that. I I don't know exactly why. I what I re, so I wasn't in my press box seat, nor was I in the stands when Sean scored that goal. We moved me and. One colleague on the PR side moved to my office and watched it on TV, and <laughs> like Keith Hernandez in Game Six, watching the whole thing unfold on TV. Yeah, and I think what you know what I recall about it because it's 20 years ago now is that it was such a crazy series. Everybody knows this who followed it and you know was close to the team. It was such a crazy series, but also you add in the Toronto media. You throw in Mike Milbury, um, you throw in everything. That kind of the injuries uh, after mm-hmm. Game Five and, and losing Michael Pekka and, and Kenny Johnson, and I think there was just so much mayhem. And even in the press box, here's the funny thing about the press box: is as much as the media, and I don't paint, I don't want to say this about everybody, but as much as everybody kind of has their job to do or is professional. When you're in a long series with another town, especially one that loves hockey as much as Toronto, things tend to get pretty hairy. Uh, relationships that are strong tend to often get a little frittered away for at least temporarily. And I think there was just so much to do, and there was so much to handle that I, I at some point in that game, which went back and forth, um. I just said to my guy, I'm I'm going to go downstairs and, and watch part of this in, in my office and, and, uh, and start thinking about what post-game looks like if we win, what post-game looks like if we lose, uh, whatever our travel plans would have been if there was a game seven or if we left right after, probably left the next day. Um, I just couldn't get, it was so intense in that building, I guess is what I'm trying to say, that I actually couldn't. I felt like I couldn't think and I needed a little space. And (laughs) as much as it might sound crazy, I'm not being defensive, as much as it might sound crazy to think that I wasn't in the stands uh, visiting family, visiting friends, sitting in the press box amongst my colleagues in the media during that moment, I'll always cherish it just as much. I'll remember it just as more because I'm in that office. The Coliseum, there hardly were any walls, or they were paper thin. And I had it on TV, yet I could hear everything. I could hear everyone. The place vibrated, the players will tell you from the cup years, it's not an exaggeration. It's not a legend over time. Like I felt literally everything. And there was enough of a little bit of a delay that watching it on TV and hearing the fans I said to my guy, he scored, he scored. And then the place went crazy. And um, uh. it's just something I'll always remember. So, yeah, I, I get it that all these years later, it's like it's, we've talked about it. It's the Chavez catch or whatever that, they, you know, they didn't. But for a moment in time, after years of poor play and uh, a lot of terrible things, it was just an emotional, oh, yeah. unforgettable thing. And you know what? I lied.
1: There is one more question, yeah, but after I say what I'm about no to say, you know, I remember the Bates penalty shot. I remember the sound of the crowd. The one that really makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up, it's a goal from that very same game, but it's a goal that came out of absolutely nowhere. And that's when Roman Hammerlick steps over the blue line and just. R- Rips a massive slap shot that hits Curtis Joseph's blocker, bounces behind him, and then it just—you could see it—it it goes in. It he it hits off his blocker, right, and it hits the net, but it it like wraps around the net on the inside, and it was just apps The crowd went from okay, am I, like a relatively good level, relative boom out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. It was just one of those unexpected goals that the explosion was so quick that the crowd was just like, oh my god, what just happened? He scored! I can't believe it from that distance, and. So we had another submission from one, Twitter. One last thing I want to and, add to
0: that, too, is is, uh-huh. is the Bates goal or a goal. There's always going to be that crescendo. But I, I don't right. want to be unfair to Eric Cairns, for example, for his fight on Shane course oh, in, in terms of a sustained thing... It was every bit, or almost as as loud then. Like you know, there, there were longer moments, and Eric walking off with the the number one finger, yep. uh and, and the, the fights that ensued. Because that was when we knew there was going to be a game seven. But just for that one second, he scored. And, you know, that's the one I'll always remember, and it, and it was oh, the yeah. loudest, even more so than 92-93 beating Pittsburgh, because those those games were to survive to get back to—that game was to survive to get back to Pittsburgh for a mm-hmm. Game 7. Go ahead, Lou. Yeah. All right, so this submission is from
1: Twitter, and it says, if Michael Pekka doesn't get hurt by Tucker's cheap shot, do the Isles make a better
0: playoff run that year? Pekka and Janssen. Uh, equally, right. maybe, you know, if you wanted to split hairs, you actually might say Kenny was more— valuable. They wound up playing yeah. They wound up playing just five games in that series, part of a fifth game. And that also goes back to game six and the emotion there. Most people were thinking the Islanders were dead in that series, even back at home, because they had lost their number one B center, Yashin, who had all the key assignments, and you're at home so you have the last change. And by far, on a team, but a lot of good defensemen. But uh, your number one defender, again, with last change at home. The people forget this now, and I couldn't tell you what they even, I wouldn't even believe whatever Vegas might have had on the line for that game back then. <laughs> but th- people were thinking, hopefully they'll give them a good fight. So to answer the question <laughs> as, I, as an Islander employee and as an Islander fan, of course, if we had. Michael and Kenny are two of our easily five most valuable players and possibly our two most valuable players on that team in that time against that team, the Maple Leafs. I absolutely believe they would have won that series. I'm I'm just not smart enough to be able to, and it's probably be too painful to think about it. I will say in 92, sure. 93, there was a feeling like there was uh, last year against Tampa Bay. That if the Islanders, Al's Islanders could get past that Montreal, well, there was a feeling that in the final four, Islanders, Montreal, Toronto, LA, that it could have been anybody's cup. I believe Bill sure. Torre even said that, and some people thought that that was like unfair of him to say. No, that that was that was a final four. It would be the equivalent of an NCAA final four where there was no clear-cut great team. There were four good teams or very good teams and it could have been anybody's cup so there was there was I think a you're feeling. seeing that right now Yeah, I, it, I think you're seeing it right now I think the four teams that are
1: in the NCAA Final Four right now for men's basketball I think any one of them can win yeah
0: it. so so when you don't come out of that when you lose in this mm-hmm. case in the semis or the conference finals there is a loss there but again that's that's all the players which goes back to that question before I don't I didn't feel it in that moment I do feel for the players and the coaches and the fans is, uh, we're going to uh, cut this one now, and we're going to do a part two of the show because you had so many more questions. But we do, uh, as always, I want to thank Lou Pellegrino. I want to thank our sponsors uh, and especially America's number one meal kit, HelloFresh. Don't forget to go to HelloFresh.com slash PressPass16 and use code PressPass16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. Also to the Main Street Board Game Cafe in Huntington Village uh, and in Stat Hockey. So thank you to Lou. Thank you to the listeners for the questions. We're going to see you very soon for part two of this conversation.